Hi everyone, welcome back to the Logical Bible Study Podcast. Our goal in this podcast is to do a proper verse-by-verse exegesis of the scriptures, really diving into today's gospel reading. And our aim here is to help you understand what it means in its original context. So we're trying to strip away all those spiritual meanings you will sometimes hear people give, sometimes in sermons as well. And we're just here to get the literal sense of scripture. What does it mean on the most fundamental level, which is where the Catholic Church says we have to start. Today we have a longer reading, so let's get into it. It's Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. Jesus spoke this parable to his disciples. The kingdom of heaven is like a man on his way abroad, who summoned his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to a third one talent, each in proportion to his ability. Then he set out. The man who received the five talents promptly went and traded with them and made five more. The man who had received two made two more in the same way. But the man who had received one went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, a long time after, the master of those servants came back and went through his accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more. Sir, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. Here are five more that I have made. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have shown you can be faithful in small things. I will trust you with greater. Come and join in your master's happiness. Next, the man with the two talents came forward. Sir, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. Here are two more that I have made. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have shown you can be faithful in small things. I will trust you with greater. Come and join in your master's happiness. Last came forward the man who had the one talent. Sir, said he, I had heard you are a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered. So I was afraid, and I went off and hid your talent in the ground. Here it is. It was yours. You have it back. But his master answered him, You wicked and lazy servant, So you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered? Well then, you should have deposited my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have recovered my capital with interest. So then, take the talent from him and give it to the man who has the five talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have more than enough. But from the man who has not, Even what he has will be taken away. As for this good-for-nothing servant, throw him out into the dark, where there will be weeping and grinding of teeth. So that's our parable today, a very famous parable, and one that's not particularly easy to understand. So let's get into it. What's the context? Jesus has been telling his disciples that he will return, and he's been telling them through a series of parables that they need to be ready for his return at any moment. So he's told the parable of the faithful steward, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, and both of those were all about Jesus rewarding disciples who are prepared for his return and who are doing what he asks of them when he returns. On the other hand, those who are not prepared do not get to, get to enter the kingdom. That was the same in both of those parables. 
Being a member of the kingdom requires investment and foresight. That's what he's been teaching them. This parable is going to make basically the same point. Now, we're looking here at Matthew's version of the parable. Luke also has a version of this parable in Luke chapter 19, but there are some differences. If you look at Luke's version, in that parable, all of the servants receive the same amount of money at the start, whereas here in Matthew's parable, they don't. That has suggested to some scholars that these parables are two different ones and they were said on different occasions. In fact, the context of Luke suggests that because in Luke's version, Luke specifically says that the reason Jesus gives the parable at that point is because his disciples expected the kingdom to come immediately. In Matthew's version, that doesn't seem to be the context. It appears that he's saying it in the last week of his life and the context is different. So it's certainly possible that these are the same two parables, just placed in different uh, time periods by the gospel authors. But I think there's a good case to be made that these were two different parables said on different occasions for slightly different reasons. So Jesus uses the same elements of the parable, but changes it up depending on the context. And of course, that's what a Jewish rabbi would do. Verse 14, Jesus said to his disciples, notice the audience here. It's not the Jewish leaders here. It's his disciples. He knows that many of his audience will be the leaders of the church in the future. So he's directing the parable at his future leaders of the church. And the parable he's going to give is called the parable of the talents. Often it's good to start with what's the overall point Jesus is trying to get at. And he tells us that in verse 29. So at the end of the parable, Jesus says, For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have more than enough. But from the man who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So that's the overall point of the parable Jesus wants his audience to take away. He starts by saying the kingdom of heaven is like, or you can translate that as it will be as when. So this is a parable about the kingdom of heaven. It's not about life in general. If you hear someone say this is a parable about our daily life or something, it's not. It's a parable about the kingdom of heaven. In particular, it's in the future tense. So it's about what the kingdom will be like in the future on Judgment Day, when people are called into the kingdom or excluded from the kingdom. It's a parable about that Judgment Day. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man on his way abroad. Or you can translate that going on a journey. As we'll see, this is a very rich man in the parable who owns a lot of property. He has servants here in in this land, in the parable, but he's going away for a while to a distant land. In Luke's version of this parable, in Luke 19, the man actually goes away and it specifically says he's going away to be appointed as king. So clearly the man here, at least in Luke's version, is supposed to represent Jesus as the king of the kingdom. And of course, Jesus goes away to heaven for a while, but he'll return to judge his kingdom. That's the main point here. Jesus is the master in the parable, or the master represents Jesus. Jesus is going away for a while, or in the parable, the master is going away for a while. We can certainly view this as representing an individual Christian's lifetime. We're given a certain time period that we have to produce fruit while the master is away, and then at our individual judgment when we die, then we're going to have to give an account for that. So certainly it would apply in that context too. It's about a person's individual time that God gives them uh, while they're alive to produce fruit. So he's a man on his way abroad who summoned his servants and entrusted his property to them. So before he goes away, the master in the parable is giving stewardship of his property to his servants. The servants, who are they? They're supposed to represent the apostles. 
particularly the apostles, but also the other leading disciples who will be in charge of looking after the church while he's gone. So as Jesus speaks this parable to his disciples, he wants the disciples to see themselves represented as the servants in the parable. Verse 15, to one he gave five talents. Now we need to talk here about how much a talent is. It's actually quite difficult to estimate what the equivalent of that is in currency because a talent is actually a measurement of weight not exactly of currency. So the value of a talent in that culture depended on whether it was gold, silver, or copper. And the parable here doesn't tell us if it's gold, silver, or copper. But we know that silver, if you had one talent of silver, that was worth approximately 15 years worth of labor for one talent of silver. So in any case, whether it's gold, silver, or copper, a talent is a lot. It's a significant amount of money. The servant here is given five of them, five talents. And if you keep in mind that one talent could be worth up to 15 years worth of labor, he's got five of them. So it's possibly a whole lifetime's worth of money that of wages that this person has been entrusted with. So what do these talents represent? What, are they, what does Jesus put them in here for? It appears to be the talents represent God's grace. We can keep that in mind. The talents represent God's grace that he gives people. Or as one scholar calls it, it's knowledge of the kingdom of heaven. If you look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 16, Jesus has used used very similar phrases already. So the talents are God's grace, the information God gives us about himself and his kingdom. That is the talents. And just as in this parable, God gives different amounts of grace and in fact, different types of grace to each Christian. There's some important information in this parable about the way God gives uh, specific gifts to different Christians. You could say that perhaps the talents, if they represent God's grace, maybe they represent spiritual gifts, which are used for the building up of the kingdom. Remember that the primary audience audience here is Jesus' apostles and the other Christian leaders. So the talents he gives them would be the authority and the gifts he gives them in order that they will leave the church well. Now, that what they don't represent is talents in terms of a modern English context. When we use the word talent, we mean like, a special ability or a special uh, something you're good at. That's not really what it means. It's actually a different word. It's a different idea. So talents in this parable does not represent your natural ability. It represents God's grace. Let's keep that in mind. If you hear preachers talking about when uh, in this parable, the talents means your natural abilities, that's, that's wrong. That's a different word, talent. So he gives one man five talents and the other servants, he gives another one two and to a third servant, he gives one talent. Notice the rich man gives the servants different amounts to look after. The expectation is that each of them will look after the money and they'll all conduct business on his behalf and they'll make a profit while he's gone. That's the expectation. So that when he returns, they can give back the money that he gave them plus more. And then... Matthew says, or rather Jesus says something really interesting. He says he gives different talents each in proportion to his ability. So the master deliberately gives uh, some of his servants more than others in proportion to their ability. Now, lots of people might see this as unfair. Why not just give everyone the same amount of money as it is in Luke's version of this? Remember, though, the master knows his servants intimately well. So he knows how much money each of his servants can handle. The same is true of Jesus with us. Jesus, or God, gives us different gifts and amounts of grace in proportion to our state of life in our calling. God knows what we can handle and God knows uh, the kind of grace we need in order to do our task well. God made us. He knows each of us individually. 
And we should be okay with this. We should be okay with the fact that God gives different amounts of grace and different types of grace to different people. It teaches us that as Christians, we're all called to do our best with what God gives us, not to compare ourselves to what God gives other Christians. That appears to be one of the downfalls of this third person, as you'll see. So one of the things you can take from this parable is that God gives different types of grace to different Christians, and all we're called to do is to steward whatever God gives us well, not to compare ourselves to what other Christians are doing. In fact, as we'll see, you can start off with a small amount of grace, but as the parable goes on, we learn that Christians can get more grace if we cooperate with the grace that God has already given us. There's a lot of really interesting theology here. Now, here is the point at which we can talk about the modern English meaning of talents, so talents in terms of abilities. Now, what we've said already is that the word talents in this parable means God's grace, but here the parable says he gave talents in proportion to each one's ability. So we can say here that God gives us grace in proportion to our natural state in life and abilities. So the modern English usage of the word talents does come in here, but it's not the talents in the parable. So the talents in the parable represents graces, but here in the parable when it says he gives talents each in proportion to his ability, that ability part, we can see that as equivalent to our natural state in life and abilities. So again, God gives us grace in proportion to our natural state in life and our abilities that we're born with that he's given us already anyway. So he he leaves the servants with the money and then he goes away. So here's already a hint If we take this as Jesus, which it is, there's a hint that Jesus is going to go away and then return. He's trying to teach his disciples, I'm going away and then I'll come back. Verse 16, the man who had received the five talents promptly went and traded with them and made five more. So the first man does a lot of good. He does a significant amount of trade and banking. So what does this part of the parable mean in terms of the kingdom? It refers to Christians bearing fruit for the kingdom, doing good works for God. Now, we know that in the context of other parables that Jesus has, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, to produce fruit or to get a return on God's investment, it means following God's will as revealed through Jesus and helping people come into the kingdom. So, to cooperate with God's grace and to produce fruit for the kingdom, it doesn't just mean believing in Jesus, it means following him and bringing more converts into the kingdom. So acting on Jesus' commandments and following them. That's what it means here to uh, produce fruit for the kingdom. We get to verse 17. It says, The man who had received two made two more in the same way. So the man who received a little less, he still did a really good job. He multiplied or he doubled the amount that he had, just as the first servant did. But then we get to verse 18. But the man who had received one went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, this is a little bit complicated to try and understand why he's hiding the master's money, because he says some strange things here. This third person is not hiding money from the master. He's not trying to keep it for himself as such. It doesn't appear that that's what he's doing. He's hiding it so it's not being stolen by others. The main point, though, and the thing that he does wrong here is that he chooses not to do anything with the money. He chooses not to invest the money or to actually do anything with what he's been given. Verse 19, now after a a long time after, the master of those servants came back. Notice that, a long time after. Jesus is trying to hint to his disciples that he's going to be gone for a long time. He came back and went through the accounts with them, or he settled accounts with them. So he called each one in one by one 
and talk and ask them, what have you done with the money that I gave you? So here is an image of judgment day when we're all going to appear before God's throne and have to give an account for our lives and the gifts that God has given us. Verse 20, the man who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more. Sir, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. Here are five more that I have made. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, we all want God to say that to us on judgment day. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have shown you can be faithful in small things, or you can translate that over a little. You have been faithful in little. I will trust you with greater or more literally, I will set you over much. Now, think about it. If he's saying here to the first person who was given five talents, that's a lot of money. But here the master says, that's little. I have trusted you with little. Well, if a lifetime's worth of money is little, what could the much be? It has to refer to something heavenly. It most likely refers to position and rewards when the kingdom comes in its fullness. So when the man who represents Jesus here says to the servant, I will set you over much, it means I will give you rewards in heaven. This is similar to chapter 24, verse 47, where in that parable, the master places the faithful servant over everything he owns. So it's a similar thing. Now, in Luke's version of this, it's more explicit. It says this faithful man, the faithful servant, receives 10 cities. So here, as in other places, the teaching is that people will receive different rewards in heaven. Now, that's a bit of a controversial teaching. We don't often talk about that in Catholic theology, but it's Jesus' clear teaching. On Judgment Day, when the kingdom comes in its fullness, different Christians will receive different rewards in proportion to how much work they did for the kingdom. He says to the first servant, come and join in your master's happiness, or more literally, enter the joy of your master. So this has to be a reference to the final judgment and the final kingdom of heaven. And you can sort of picture this happening. We hope that God says this to us. Enter the joy of your master. Well done, good and faithful servant. Next, the man with the two talents came forward. And as we'll see here, it basically repeats. Sir, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. Here are two more that I have made. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have shown you can be faithful in small things. I would trust you with greater. Come and join in your master's happiness. Notice that he says here the exact same thing as he said to the first servant. He doesn't say, oh, well, you made less than the first servant. He doesn't say that. God just calls us to be faithful with what grace he has given us, and he calls us to follow his commandments. He doesn't expect us to produce exactly the same amount or same type of fruit as someone else. He just says, I want return on the investment that I give you. Verse 24, last came forward the man who had the one talent. Now, there's a few elements here that we need to consider that might be coming into play with this last man. Some scholars think that it's possible that this third servant, the one who buried his money in the ground, it's possible that he was insulted or he felt insulted when he was entrusted with only one talent. So maybe this third servant is jealous or envious of the other servants. So this is what he says, Sir, I had heard you were a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered. It's an interesting phrase. What's he saying here about the master? It apparently means something like this. Master, I know you ask a lot from your servants and you take some of the money that they have made. So this servant is apparently, if we understand it correctly, He's worried that if he invests the master's money, then he's going to get a return on the investment. But then the master is eventually just going to come and take all the money that he's worked so hard to produce. 
So he doesn't want the master to benefit from his stewardship. He's sort of thinking, well, it's my work. I produce this. I didn't want to make any more because I knew that if I did, you'd just take it all anyway. So if that's the right interpretation, then it's a poor excuse, isn't it? For this man to say, I didn't want to invest it because I know that you'll take most of it. That's a terrible excuse. Because if the servant is given the money from the master, it's the master's money anyway. He's acting on behalf of the master. All of the goods that he makes and all of the original money, it belongs to the master anyway. So it's silly for him to say, oh, you're going to steal the money anyway. Of course he's going to. The money belongs to him. In fact, as we'll see, the master doesn't really do this at all. This person is under a false impression about the master. He's like, I think you're a hard man. You take all our money, all our hard work, and you take it from us. As we'll see, as the parable goes on, the master doesn't do that. He actually lets the servants, the faithful servants, keep the money that they have handled well. So this third servant, the unfaithful one, is wrong. He has the false impression of the master. Overall, though, even if we can't fully understand the reasoning of this third servant in the parable, and scholars have different views about it, but certainly at a minimum, what we're supposed to take away from this third servant, Jesus wants us to see this third servant as lazy. He's a lazy servant and his excuses are not justified. Maybe this excuse here, when he says, I know that you're a harsh man and you'll take all our money, maybe, this is just speculation, but maybe it's supposed to represent Christians who have a false view of God's character and expectations. Maybe they, people who have not been properly taught about God or who don't really listen to the teachings of Jesus, so they have a false view of God. Or maybe it's Christians who are afraid of persecution. It's those who don't want to put in the hard work of doing things for the kingdom because they don't want to be persecuted. That would certainly fit with the first century context. Again, at a minimum, we should see this third servant as a Christian who does not listen to and act on Jesus' teachings. So it's those who are lazy about their responsibility in the kingdom, particularly early church leaders who don't do a good job. That's who it primarily represents. Verse 25, the servant goes on, So I was afraid, and I went off and hid your talent in the ground. So he decides not to invest the money, Uh, He just decides to protect it. He keeps it in the ground. He doesn't want to invest it because he doesn't want the master to take some of the money that was made from the investment. So he chooses not to do anything with it. And now he brings up that, uh, the talent that he was first given and he gives it back to him. He says, here it is. It was yours. Have it back. Here's the problem. The servant didn't do anything with the gifts he was given. Now he didn't, he did protect it, which is right, but he didn't actually do anything with it. It was just, it stayed stagnant. That's the problem. The gift he was given from the master remained stagnant. That is the opposite of God, of what God wants. God wants Christians to produce fruit. He doesn't just want Christians to say the sinner's prayer, to say they believe in Jesus, and then do literally nothing. He expects Christians to produce fruit with the grace that he's given them. That's the teaching of this parable. Verse 26, his master answered him, you wicked and lazy servant. We can translate that slothful, you slothful servant. We don't want God to say this about us. So we certainly want to pay attention here. You wicked and lazy servant. So you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered. Notice here, the master admits that he does do this. He has a, he, he agrees that he has a tendency to do this with money. However, it is well within his rights as master to do so because it's all his money anyway. He goes on, verse 27, Well then, you should have deposited my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have recovered my capital with interest. More literally there, what it says is, I should have received what was my own with interest. So the master naturally expected to receive his investment plus interest. 
That makes sense. So he says here that if the servant was genuinely worried that the master was concerned about getting money, then logically the servant should have done the opposite of what he did. The servant should have pursued some financial undertaking so that he can make more money and make his master pleased. So really he did the opposite of what he should have done. He didn't really think it through at all. So the king here, or the master says, yes, you know that I expect a return on my investment. So the obvious thing would have been to do, to be faithful and to follow my commands. That's basically what he says here to the servant. I think there's a parallel here to serving Jesus. The teaching here for Christians is that you need to know what you're signing up for if you want to be part of the kingdom. If you're going to be part of the kingdom, God expects you to serve him faithfully. And if you do that, there'll be rewards. But God chooses to cooperate with us so that we'll bear fruit for his kingdom. But he expects us to bear fruit. That's one of the prerequisites for remaining in the kingdom and progressing in the kingdom. So it's kind of a, it's a lesson here about be careful what you sign up for. And indeed, this matches with other things Jesus says in other parables where he says, count the cost before you start thinking about coming into the kingdom. This is what the Catholic commentary on sacred scripture says here. I'm just going to quote from it because it makes a really good point about the character of this master. Confining ourselves to the storyline of the parable, the master's rebuke seems excessively harsh. But if the talents represent each servant's knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, then the severity of the charge is understandable. Being entrusted with the message of salvation entails great responsibility. To sit on that message or to bury it for ourselves is a serious breach of responsibility to the Lord, who calls us to share his good news with the world. He does not want us to give back to him unshared and unfruitful. So I think that makes a really good sense of this, because we can sort of look at the master and think, wow, that's pretty harsh. But if you think about it in terms of God expecting a return on his investment in us for the kingdom, it sort of makes sense. So that's from the Catholic commentary on sacred scripture for the Gospel of Matthew, which is a resource I use quite a bit in helping understand these parables. Verse 28, this is the master continuing to speak. So now take the talent from him and give it to the man who has the five talents. What it actually says there in the original is 10 talents. So it's probably just a typo. So the first man, the one who's already made a lot of money, who's got the 10 talents already, he's given the additional money from the third unfaithful servant because he has been a faithful servant who has cooperated with grace and the unfaithful servant does not deserve it. The idea here seems to be that the reward that would have been due to the third man was forfeited due to his actions. So there was a heavenly reward waiting for this man if he was willing to persevere for the kingdom, but it was forfeited and given to someone else. That's a little bit scary, isn't it? Now, in Luke's parable in Luke 19, at this point, the people object and they say, why have you given it to the, why have you taken the money and given it to someone who already has plenty of money? But we get to verse 29 in our parable and This is what the master says, for to everyone who has will be given more and he will have more than enough. Or you can translate that as he will have abundance. This is the master speaking. And this is exactly what's just happened to the three men. Everyone who has will be given more. The principle Jesus is giving here appears to be something like this. Those who cooperate with the grace God gives them and follows Jesus and his teachings will receive more grace and be drawn further into the kingdom. That's the teaching here. But then what's the flip side? The master in the parable says, but from the man who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
So what does this mean in terms of the kingdom? It means that the one who does not use the grace God has given him or uses his will to cooperate with God and draw closer to God, the person who doesn't do that, his grace, gifts of grace will be taken away. That's scary. But as Catholics, we believe it is possible to lose the state of grace if you don't cooperate with God. And then he says this, this is very scary. The, the master says, as for this good for nothing servant, throw him out into the dark or more literally into outer darkness. As you probably know, if you've heard lots of Jesus parables, this is a reference to hell. Outer darkness means hell. It's a place of complete separation from God. Most scholars think the image here of outer darkness, it's probably referring to this idea of a heavenly banquet. At the time of Jesus, they saw heaven as being like a banquet. And the teaching here is that on judgment day, those who have been faithful to God and who make it into the kingdom, they go into the banquet hall where it's very bright. Those who don't make it into the kingdom, who don't make it into the banquet hall, they're left outside. So that's the image here. It's like those who are in the kingdom are inside the hall, those who are left outside um, are outside the kingdom. So it's those who are in hell, basically. And he says there will be weeping and grinding of teeth. Whenever you see that phrase, it's a reference to hell. And it means extreme frustration and regret. So we have here this image of people who are cast out of the dining hall or who don't make it into the dining hall and they have extreme frustration and regret. Why is this man cast out of the dining hall? Why is he cast into hell? It's because he didn't do God's will. He knew God's will because Jesus revealed it and he didn't do it. And this represents Christian disciples, particularly those in the first century, who knew Jesus' will, or God's will, as revealed through Jesus, but they didn't do it. So he's cast into hell. It's a sober warning to Jesus' audience. Jesus here is saying that if you know my teachings and you don't follow them, there's a good chance you'll end up in hell. It's controversial teaching in, in uh, contemporary society, even in Catholic theology, but that's the teaching here. The man is cast into outer darkness because he refused to cooperate with God's grace. So in other words, we can, and often this is the way that Catholic theologians phrase it, by the time he died, he was not in a state of grace. So when he died, he ended up in hell because he wasn't in a state of grace. The same teaching applies to Catholic salvation theology today. The Catholic Church teaches that if you die in a state of grace, even if you're not perfect, you make it to heaven. But if you die not in a state of grace, you don't make it to heaven. And so... This parable, one of the things you can take from it is how the state of grace works. Now, in Luke's version, there's more to say at the end of this parable. There's another group of people in Luke's version. There's enemies who did not want the man to be their king. And we sort of encounter this other group of people who are even further out of the kingdom. But Matthew doesn't include them in his version, which suggests it's probably a different parable. So overall, what does the parable of the talents teach us? Well, it's about Christian stewardship. We as Christians will have to give an account for the way we used our gifts on Judgment Day. It warns against the dangers of sloth, where God's blessings and abilities that he gives us are squandered out of fear and laziness. It's a warning against that. In fact, the teaching is stronger than that. The teaching is that disciples who do that, who squander God's grace and God's blessings, they're in danger of hell, even Christians. That's the teaching. On the other hand, those who are diligent in working for the kingdom, using the grace that God has given them, they will receive more rewards in heaven. So that's an attempt at an exegesis of this parable. It's somewhat confronting, and you might have found some of the implications of this quite shocking, but I'd encourage you to study the parable yourself, and I think you'll see that what's been offered here is fairly consistent, and it does seem to be what Jesus is getting at. 
It's a difficult parable though, certainly, and there's probably lots of things you can take from it. So we've gotten up to verse 30 of chapter 25 of Matthew. In verses 31 to 46, Jesus has one more parable to give about how his servants will be judged on judgment day. That parable is the famous parable of the sheep and the goats. So that's the very next thing Jesus says. Now that's read on Monday of week one of Lent every year. So you might want to chase that down in the podcast archives, Monday of week one in Lent, as well as the 34th Sunday in ordinary time in year A. Let's quickly look at the Catechism. There's a few really interesting and profound teachings here in the Catechism. So firstly, in paragraph 546, there's some information here about how Jesus uses parables. And here's what it says here in part of paragraph 546. Through his parables, Jesus invites people to the feast of the kingdom, but he also asks for a radical choice. To gain the kingdom, one must give everything. Words are not enough. Deeds are required. The parables are like mirrors for man. Will he be hard soil or good earth for the word? What use has he made of the talents he has received? So you'll hear there uh, the the reference to the talents. And that's a good way of summarizing uh, what the parables are all about in a way. Paragraph 1936, this is about how God sets society up so that there's equality but differences among men. So this is in the section about Catholic social teaching. On coming into the world, man is not equipped with everything he needs for developing his bodily and spiritual life. He needs others. Differences appear tied to age, physical abilities, intellectual or moral aptitudes. The benefits derived from social commerce and the distribution of wealth. The talents are not distributed equally. So here the Catechism uses the word talents in a slightly different way than the parable does. So, Although it references the parable, in the parable, as we said, talents means God's grace. Here it means talents in terms of broadly God's gifts that he gives us in life or God's state of life that he gives us. Really interesting teaching there. Paragraph 1029, this is about heaven. In the glory of heaven, the blessed continue joyfully to fulfill God's will in relation to other men and to all creation. Already they reign with Christ. With him, they shall reign forever and ever. So what's the link here? What's this paragraph trying to teach us? Notice that phrase particularly that already there are some who reign with Christ. Uh, and it talks here about how they're going, the blessed will continually joyful, joyfully fulfill God's will. So in the image of the parable, those people who joyfully enter God's rest if they're faithful servants. Here the Catholic Church teaches that already there are some people who are, in a sense, reigning with Christ who have already entered, entered into the joy of God's rest. Paragraph 1720, this is in a bit, the section about Christian beatitude. The New Testament uses several expressions to characterize the beatitude to which God calls man, the coming of the kingdom of God, the vision of God, entering into the joy of the Lord, entering into God's rest. So that phrase there, entering into the joy of the Lord, that's one of the ways that the New Testament characterizes going to heaven, but it's not the only way. Lastly, paragraph 2683, this is quite a remarkable paragraph. This is in the section about a cloud of witnesses. The witnesses who have preceded us into the kingdom, especially those whom the church recognizes as saints, share in the living tradition of prayer by the example of their lives, the transmission of their writings and their prayer today. They contemplate God, praise him and constantly care for those whom they have left on earth. When they entered into the joy of their master, they were put in charge of many things. Their intercession is their most exalted service to God's plan. 
we can and should ask them to intercede for us and for the whole world. So here the church teaches that there are some saints who are in heaven, or at least in the beatific vision already, and we should seek their intercession because, just like the people in this parable, they have entered into the joy of the master and they have been put into in charge of many things. So in a sense, the parable certainly primarily refers to the final judgment at the end of time, but it can also refer to the particular judgment, the judgment of when a person dies and they immediately go before God's throne and they either go into the beatific vision, which is God's rest, or they go into uh, hell, basically. So this parable can be used to refer to both judgments. Hopefully you found today's episode uh, useful. It is somewhat difficult. There's, it's a complex parable and a controversial parable and a confronting one, but hopefully you found this exegesis useful. If you know others in your life who would benefit from hearing a verse-by-verse exegesis from a Catholic perspective, please share this podcast with them and continue to keep the ministry in your prayers. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to tack this little message on to the end of today's episode to let you know that the episode you heard today is the last one you'll hear in the Gospel of Matthew as part of the weekday cycle. So if you've been following this through on the weekdays, this is the last time you'll hear the Gospel of Matthew. Now, there is a little more in the Gospel of Matthew if you open your Bible. Um, We got up to about halfway through Matthew chapter 25, but the lectionary doesn't do any more as part of the weekday cycle. So, I'll just talk you through a few places where you might find the rest of the Gospel of Matthew because it's kind of spread out across the year. So Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46, that is the parable of the sheep and the goats, a very famous one. That is read on uh, Monday of the first week of Lent. Uh, So um, it is read around Lent time. And it's also read um, on the Feast of Christ the King as well towards... Uh, the end of year A on a Sunday. And then after that, chapter 26 starts the events of the last couple of days of Jesus' life. So you have the leaders plotting together, and then it goes into the Last Supper, basically. And so you can hear some of those last three chapters, so Matthew 26, 27, 28. Uh, Some of it is on Palm Sunday. You'll hear some of it on the Easter Vigil in year A. Um, You'll hear the Ascension story, which is right at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. That is read on the Feast of the Ascension in year A. Uh, And there's also a couple of other places um, around Lent and Holy Week where you get to hear snippets of those last couple of chapters. Um, But you certainly don't get to hear most of those last few chapters. So most of Matthew 26, 27 and 28, we will cover as bonus episodes of the podcast through the Patreon page. So if you've liked what you've heard of the um, Matthew exegesis episodes Uh, what you've heard so far, then you can get more of those through the Patreon website um, if you decide to become a supporter of the ministry. Um, And I ask you to consider that because it's a small ministry and it relies on your help. Um, Then you can get access to it if you're willing to to donate $10 a month or more. You can get access to all of those bonus episodes. Um, And after a while, you will have heard the entire Gospel of Matthew. And eventually the plan is to collect all of the recordings for the Gospel of Matthew and make them available in chronological order. That will be something that you can buy from the ministry in future, which will be really useful for uh, Bible studies. And I think particularly for the Gospel of Matthew, which is um, quite misunderstood. So what's going to happen in the coming days is uh, next week when we start the weekdays, we're now turning to the Gospel of Luke. 
So if you have uh, some friends in your life or some other people who are interested in the Bible, but they haven't been listening to the podcast so far, now might be a good time to get them interested because we're starting to look at the Gospel of Luke, which is something a little different. Thank you so much for your support. And I pray that you continue to learn new things through this podcast and prayerfully consider supporting the ministry. Thank you.